right, we are on week five here in our book. And the last chapters have been uh, somewhat uh, discouraging by comparison, talking about the sin that corrupts our heart, for example, last week. But this week we get to go into the subject of the dynamic heart redeemed and God's word in restoring his creation with regard to us functioning the way that we're supposed to as human beings. In a world of lurking dangers and hidden corruption, the more people know about something, the less they can enjoy its beauty. You guys were just talking about airplanes. There's something marvelous when you're a kid and you get on an airplane and it flies and you're amazed by it. And then you think about the fact that it's a bunch of moving parts and you're not sure they're all going to keep working together and there could be great fear in comparison. And so that's his point, that the more you know about something, in this case the human heart, the less beautiful it seems because we see all of the hidden dangers of it. Like a steamboat pilot, the more knowledgeable people become of others and themselves, the more they know what dangers lurk under the surface of human behavior. One of the really important points that this chapter makes is that Jesus accomplished what Adam failed to do, to love the Lord his God with his whole heart. Jesus perfectly reflected the dynamic heart of God in his own human heart. He obeyed God in every aspect of his experience and so made it possible for human experience to be restored. Through Jesus, human experience is not just restored to its original glory in the garden. It is swept up into something even greater. So let's talk for just a moment. Why is it important that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed? Or how did Jesus succeed where Adam failed? with regard to things like obedience, or his thoughts, or his desires. Think about the contrast, for example, between the creation story and Jesus' life. Okay, good. Yeah, God just gave Adam one command do this, and Adam broke it, and we understand the law has a great many commands, the law that was given through Moses, and Jesus kept all of them perfectly, so certainly there's that aspect of obedience. What about his thinking? What was wrong with Adam's thinking? What was right with Jesus' thinking at different points in their lives? Okay. Sure. Good. Good. Uh, Jesus had a constant knowledge of why he was there and what God was doing in him uh, and through him. Um, let's see. Um, what about the things that they wanted? What did Adam want, for example, in the garden? I mean, at, at a very obvious level, he wants the fruit. But what was the fruit offering to him, according to Satan's words? Knowledge, yeah, power, you will know and be perhaps on a level with God, so good. Um, and in contrast with that, what was Jesus' desire? Was Jesus' desire ever in conflict with God the Father's desire? I mean, there's in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a sense of struggle, right? Um, but the outcome of that struggle is obedience. 
And so in contrast to Adam who said, I want this thing that God has said not to want, Jesus in his temptation, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, puts his desire, humanly speaking, under the will of God the Father. And then with regard to action, that's what we started talking about. Adam sinned, Jesus obeyed. And so what's important is because apart from the uh, sacrifice and obedience of Jesus, we could not begin to be right with God. And even beyond that, his life does provide an example for us. Quick, very brief aside on the purpose of Jesus' atonement. There are people who will say, the atonement, what Jesus accomplished in his death, was simply to be a good example of other people. This is such a great example, like someone who would throw himself in front of a car to save a child. This is the greatest example of that sort of thing. Right. But the problem with that is that it, it ignores the issue of sin. Like just doing something self-denying to help someone else doesn't really cover all of what God's doing in the atonement. And um, Another of the ideas of the atonement is, well, Jesus is just showing the consequences of sin, that God is a just and fair ruler. There's a sense in which that's true, but again, that's not the main point of what Jesus did. And so in the Bible, we find this idea that people have talked about in different ways, substitutionary atonement, uh, sacrificial death in our place. There's different ways to say that idea but it's more than just God follows his own rules. It's more than just, well, this was a really amazing and self-denying thing to do. It is that Jesus' death was, in fact, the only way that we could be rightly related to God, the only way that we could begin to be transformed to do what God made us to do. So going back to the previous chapter, what did God make us to do? At, at, at the very basic level, why did God make us as human beings? To do what toward Him? To love Him, glorify Him, worship Him. I mean, all those words would be appropriate. And we really can't do that in our sinful state, and that's why what Jesus did was so important. The primary point of this chapter is faith in Christ is the means by which the dynamic heart is restored to do what is designed for, to worship God in thought, desire, and choice. Faith is how a heart receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that righteousness retakes control of the dynamic design, restoring the beauty of its ability to worship God. Adam and Eve's failure to trust God indeed stains human experience and taints the dynamic functions of every human heart since. The antidote to sin is a fresh human experience, and the hero who brings that new human experience is Jesus. Adam failed to keep his relationship with God, and his descendants followed suit, failing to relate to God in faith. But Jesus, though tempted in a garden just like Adam, refused to listen to any voice but God's. Where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, Jesus succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' long walk of obedience culminated in the greatest display of faith in all of redemptive history. Did Jesus have faith? Yes. That's kind of a weird concept for us to think about, right? Because if Jesus already knows everything about God, Jesus is God, in what sense would he really need to have faith? Because we have faith because we don't know things. We have faith because we're waiting for things that God has promised. Why then would Jesus have faith? 
Okay, but I'm but I'm saying like why would he need to do it though? Why does he need to have faith? Because in a sense, if he's God, he already knows how the plan's going to work out, which is different from us. Okay, right? And uh, he, so he accomplishes God's will by obedience. What does Jesus' faith do for our faith? Maybe is a better way to ask it. Think about what it says in Hebrews. We have a high priest who is tempted in every point, the same as we are, yet without sin. So is there a, uh, a common experience between Jesus and us? Both experience temptation in that particular example. What's the difference? He doesn't sin. What does that provide then for us? Forgiveness and hope for an example that, that God can, that it is possible not to sin, at, even as a human being, because Jesus is genuinely a human being. And so that um, all of those things together, I think Jesus' faith both is the way for us to have faith, it is an example of faith, and it provides the hope that possessing faith enables us to please God. It says in Hebrews as well, without faith it is impossible to please God because the one uh, that comes to him must believe that he is, all those other sorts of ideas. Um, and so Jesus' faith is an important thing even though at first hearing of this idea of Jesus' faith it seems like a, a strange or unnecessary thing to speak of one who is truly God to have faith in any sense. Look at the bottom of that first column. Jesus' thoughts, feelings, and choices align with his Father's, creating a way for all people to become sons of God. Mark 14.33 says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Mark 14.33, he then reported to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Mark 14, 34, and he withdrew to pray. Jesus' prayer time was highly emotional, for he fell on his face, Matthew 26, 39, or Mark 14, 25, and was in agony. The source of his great woe was the suffering and shame that he was to experience, an event that Jesus knew to be the will of his Father. The faith that Jesus displays in the garden expresses the dynamic functions of his heart, most evident in these narratives is Jesus' emotional struggle. His great desire was to be spared from the shame of being forsaken by God. Do you agree with this statement that his, his great desire was to avoid shame of being forsaken? Something that I've still been thinking about, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Okay. 
might be helpful, I'm trying to think which would be the most helpful spot to turn with regard to it. Um, For example, in <coughs> so looks is kind of a short accounting of it. Uh, turn over to Mark fourteen, maybe, and we'll look at it there. So, uh, Mark, uh, someone want to read Mark fourteen thirty-two to 42? Okay, go ahead. As we go down through the rest of the section, there's um, he rebukes the disciples for sleeping. He prays it says three times, and then uh, the the time is at hand for Judas to betray him. Uh, I guess we would have to ask in verse 36, what is the cup that he wishes not to drink of? So one possibility is it's a death on the cross. One is it's this idea of separation. I mean, there's definitely sorrow involved with it. Okay. I'm uh, trying to find the spot in... There's a spot in Revelation where it also talks of a cup. Let's see. Right. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right, right, yeah, that would be definitely a, a parallel a parallel passage there. There is a sense in which there is, there's, um, particularly in the prophets, there's this idea of the cup being God's wrath. 
which is not disconnected from being forsaken, but the, the means by which the specific type of forsaking or agony or whatever we want to call it that Christ is going through is the fact that he's bearing God's wrath. There is a sense in which this is certainly a mystery because how could God pour out wrath against God? Uh, and I think we would probably not do justice to the text if we just say, well, God is pouring out wrath on the human Jesus because I don't th that draws us too um, harsh a separation between the fact that Jesus is God and man. And there's also the practical sense that no mere human being can bear up under God's wrath. So there's a sense in which infinite wrath demands an infinite person to bear that wrath. Um, so when Jesus cries out on a cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that's Matthew 27, 46. There is, there is this coming together of God's wrath, Jesus' suffering, payment for our sin, uh, perfect obedience and submission to God's will, all of those things are taking place in that moment. Um, so again, I don't know that it's necessarily a wrong way to say it, the way that he says it about Jesus' great desire was to be spared from the shame of being forsaken by God. I do think There's maybe something slightly more than shame there. But there's a bunch of things going on, not just shame, perhaps. So, again, I don't want to overemphasize that point. I, I don't think that what he said was wrong. I just want us to think about, like, all of the things that were going on at the cross. Um, we've had a little bit of an ongoing discussion of um, uh, that the one song where it says God is strange from God, whether we should sing it that way or not. So Isaiah 53, someone in the church sent me a note and said, hey, in Isaiah 53 it talks about um, Jesus being, let me see if I can find the specific phrase here. I think it was the idea that he was cut off. Oh, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So there's a sense in which God is crushed by God or that he is struck by God. Isaiah 53, 4, smitten of God and afflicted. Um, again, we come up to the edge of this great mystery. God and God, eternally one, cannot be separated, and yet God pours out wrath on a person of himself, for lack of a better way of saying it. The bottom line is that there is this intense struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane where in no sinful way, Jesus says, if there is any other way, let's go that way. But I will do what you have called me to do. And, and that, I think, is where, um, where we fall far short in our struggle against sin. It's not often God has laid a heavy burden upon us and we know that we have to go through with it. It's God has simply said, here's something that is good for you, will keep you from terrible consequences, 
and will bring blessing, and we say, no, I want to go the other way of the sin that's going to destroy me. We often fall far short of the agony that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, there's not perfect illustrations of this, but, I mean, in trying to explain this idea, people have used illustrations like, which is harder, to lift the end of a piano for five seconds or for five hours? For five hours, right? For five days, for five years. I mean, none of us can do that. We have a stopping point in our struggle against sin that is far quicker than Jesus' stopping point since he never gave in to temptation. And so um, that's where I think the Hebrews passage comes in. If Jesus has gone far beyond what any of us have done, then certainly he is the one to help us in our struggle against sin. Within the emotional turmoil in the middle of that second column, Jesus' request was based upon an understanding of who God is. All things are possible for you, as well as a relational trust in him, Abba, Father. What does that word Abba mean? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just like, so we would say father, like there's a way of saying father in like a distant and respectful sort of way. Um, Roman Catholics use it in this sense when they address their priests. But you may not know the guy. There may not be any kind of connection with him. But the other word that's used there is this is not just he's a father, but that he's my father, you know. And so there's a relational trust in a remarkable, intentional effort, Jesus chooses to submit his will to God's. This is faith. So the point that he's trying to make is Jesus knew something. God is all-powerful. Jesus has an affectionate relationship with God, Abba, Father, and based on those two things and in connection with them, and at the same time, he makes a conscious choice to obedience. The dynamic faith that Jesus displayed in facing his death gives an example of perfect human faith, but the news gets better. Jesus' faith-enabled obedience and suffering is exemplary to human faith, and it is also causative, foundational, and necessary. We would be in a difficult spot if we had Jesus' example, but we remain in our sins unable to do anything like follow it. Because, I mean, we see great examples of things all the time whatev in whatever area, but if we have no ability to, to actually live up to that, the example has no, no purpose for us. In Jesus' case, not only was there the example, but the thing that he was accomplishing through that example was our salvation such that we are now able to follow his example. Jesus' faith created the possibility for his followers to participate in a genuine life-directing experience through faith. His dynamic obedience created the possibility for all humanity to experience redemption, the alignment of human hearts with the eternal heart of God. In Christ, human faith found its perfect expression, and the human heart is thus restored to follow this example. So the first question, do you agree with these two paragraphs about Jesus' faith? That it gives us an example that it is what leads us to faith, um, that it is a perfect expression of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. 
<laughs> okay. So I think generally we would agree with what those two paragraphs are saying. So how does Jesus' faith leading to obedience affect or help us to do the same, faith that leads to obedience? Do we approach God in a different way than Jesus did? No. It, obviously, there are things that are different between Jesus and us. I mean, clearly, he's God, we're not God. But to the extent that Jesus is approaching God, at, uh, approaching God as the perfect God-man in faith and obeying, we follow that same progression, faith leading to obedience. Um, and that's kind of like one of the ongoing questions about what do we do with the life of Jesus? There was a popular mu movement. It's popped up several times. I remember it popping up when I was a kid, this idea of what would Jesus do. And at first glance, that sounds like the question we should ask. What would Jesus do? How could you go wrong asking that question? How could you go wrong asking that question? Okay, so what's different between Jesus' experience and ours? Okay, so there's the aspect of perfection. What about the things that Jesus did? Did Jesus do miracles? Yeah, and we're not doing miracles. Even for people who believe that miracles are possible today, those miracles would not take place to authenticate that we're God's specific messenger, his Messiah sent from him, right? Um, so we're not doing miracles. Um, are we called to confront religious authorities in the way that Jesus did with the Pharisees? Not necessarily and not specifically in the same way. There's just there's differences in Jesus' experience and ours, but there are similarities. And the similarities are what we're trying to look at in this chapter with regard to just the basic concept of faith leading to obedience. And so um, uh, so it's important to understand the difference between what would Jesus do and what this chapter is saying, but also to recognize that there are things that we ought to um, meditate on the life of Jesus, and then that will be uh, helpful for us in our Christian lives. At the top of the second page on the back side of your sheet there, faith plugs into the regular functions of the heart. What people think about, the things people want in life, the choices people make, and reroutes their entire day, week, month, and year. It is not a Sunday thing. It is not an alternate state of mind people try to enter during a religious service. What do you think he means when he says faith is not a Sunday thing? Okay. Okay. Alberta, what were you saying? Yeah, right. So we don't walk into the door of the church, turn on the ignition, now we're having faith, turn it off when we walk out the door, do our own thing. And so uh, we, we get that, but sometimes that's not the way we act, right? Um, sometimes we feel like as long as I do and say the right things on Sunday, 
then it's not as important what I do and say the rest of the week. I'm not saying us personally, but that's an idea that people have sometimes. And that just doesn't fit. What about, what does he mean by it's not an alternate state of mind people try to enter during a religious service? Okay. Okay. Can you possess faith even if you don't have sort of a religious feeling, I think is maybe part of it too, right? Sometimes people think if I feel angelic's not the right word. Um, uh, if I have some sort of celestial or heavenly feeling wash over me in the context of a religious service, that's faith. And faith has a little lot more to do with do I obey God when um, my boss asks me to do something I don't like at work than it does with some sort of feeling of euphoria in the context of singing a hymn on Sunday morning. Not saying singing the hymn on, on Sunday morning and being um, amazed by the truth of it. I mean, we ought to have some sort of internal response to that, and that is part of faith. But faith is more than just, I have this particular feeling at this particular point. Hebrews 11, he goes through uh, to some extent on pages 73 to 75. So let me turn there briefly. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11 because I think it will be helpful. He says, with regard to faith, this is how the people of God have always lived. Hebrews 11 recounts stories of how the Old Testament saints lived by faith, a dynamic faith that restored their whole heart. Everyone in Hebrews 11 believed God's promises of a better homeland, valued it more than the fleeting desires of today's comfort, and committed themselves to pursue it against all opposition. Faith seeped through all the heart's functions. The author repeats the phrase by faith numerous times, describing the foundational nature of faith for the, dyna the dynamic heart transformation demonstrated throughout the chapter. So how did faith affect their thinking? Someone read Hebrews 11, verse 3, please. Okay. So what is one of the a things that is part of faith that affects our thinking? What's one of the things that we ought to believe by faith from that verse? God made it all. Okay. So that's one of the things that we understand, that they understood, that we ought to understand. Uh, verses 13, 14, and 15. Okay. 
How are these people described? How do they think of themselves? Strangers and exiles, pilgrims, different words along those lines. And we tend to think, well, obviously Abraham, because he left the country he was familiar with. But that theme comes up repeatedly. The Israelites are in Egypt, but they don't belong in Egypt. The Israelites are in the land of Canaan, and even though it's the promised land, there's a sense in which it's not ultimately the place where they belong either. I mean, Hebrews 11 sort of ties it together and basically says God's people are not at home in the place they're supposed to be until they're in God's presence for eternity. And the same is true of us today. What did they... Um, so they were seeking that homeland, and instead of thinking about, I want to go back to where I was, they're thinking about, I want to press on to where I ought to be. When do the Israelites most often get into trouble in terms of their thinking? Right. They started looking back to where they had come from and thinking, they, and this is a, a comparison kind of thing in our minds. Egypt, Canaan. When they started being most sinful, what was it they were thinking as far as which one was better? They started thinking Egypt was better. Was that true? No. What were they in Egypt? Slaves. And beaten and oppressed. It was not a four-course meal every night of the week. It was stripped go and scrape by and gulp down some bites of food while you're running around trying to keep up with what Pharaoh's making you do as he's bu you're building cities for him. And so the same thing is true for us. If our thinking is wrong about the comparison between our present life and the life to come, keeping in mind all the things we looked at from Ecclesiastes, there are good blessings in this life. But they are temporary, they are fleeting, they are often gone from us. And so if we have the wrong perspective on all of those sorts of things, then we may not be learning from what it says in Hebrews 11. He says desire is strongly involved in faith too. Uh, someone read verse 16 if you would please. What did they desire or what did they love? Better country. Because they loved who? Because they loved God. And so it's not just I know that I am a stranger. I mean, Isaac, for example, had a constant reminder that he was a stranger. He's not one of the people of the land. He's getting into conflict with the people of the land. The same is true of Abraham before him and of Jacob after him. They had a constant awareness that they didn't belong. But just an awareness that you don't belong without a corresponding desire for the thing that God has said is coming is insufficient. And then with regard to what came after, in what ways did they obey? Look at verses 7 and 8, for example. What were some of the examples of their obedience? Someone read 7 and 8, if you would. Mm -hmm. 
How did Noah show faith just by building a boat? Yeah, there's no rain. Yeah. But he heard God's word, he believed God's word, and then that led him to action. Uh, look also at verses 24 through 26. Someone read those for us, please. 24 through 26. So we see some elements of all of these things in here, but why did Moses, um, why did Moses not live out his life, his life as a prince of Egypt? And he didn't have a perfect route to get there, which is another point that we ought to think about, right, too. I mean, he killed an Egyptian. That was murder. Even if he did it for the right reasons, it wasn't the right thing to do. And so he ends up in the wilderness to a certain extent because of his own sin. And so that it's interesting that this chapter then describes him as having faith. But I think we see better echoes of his faith as we continue through his life, particularly, for example, when the, um, the Israelites worship the golden calf, God says, let's wipe the slate clean and start over, and it'll be from your family. That could have been a tempting offer for Moses, because the people of Israel had been extraordinarily difficult up to that point. But he said, God, you've said you're going to do it this with this people, so I'm pleading with you to do this with this people, as difficult as they are. He doesn't say this in the passage, but you can think of it, probably is going through his mind. As difficult as they are, as troublesome as it's been for me, these people are the people that you've said you're going to do this with, and for the sake of your name, do it with this people, and I'm willing to be a part of that. And so we see, we see it going from the guy who's growing up in Egypt who sort of haphazardly kills the Egyptian, runs out into the wilderness, and then he gets to that point where he's interceding for the people of God on the basis of God's promises and expressing faith, I think, in that as well as in the things this passage talks about. One or two last things as we wrap up. Once plugged into the human heart, faith restores its structures to imitate the righteous character of Jesus, whose perfect holiness fulfilled God's design for human experience. That righteousness is granted by faith, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Believers are justified, legally declared righteous before God, but believers are also sanctified. Righteousness actually characterizes their lives. Sanctification has an initial aspect of being set free from sin, uh, the slavery of sin, so that it is no longer master. It also has a progressive aspect in which believers display in their lives the righteousness of Christ. Just as sanctification has an initial and a progressive aspect, it also has a future aspect 
the righteousness of Christ granted to believers finds its final completion only when they are resurrected and thus made like their resurrected Savior. Why is it then important to understand the difference between justification and sanctification or to understand the process by which God makes us righteous? We were talking at first about sort of how do the parts of us respond rightly by faith, but now we're talking about how do we get transformed from being sinful in our thoughts, desires, and actions to being righteous. Um, what does the process of sanctification look like? If we were going to draw a diagram, what would it look like? What's the first step along the way with regard to sanctification? Salvation. So we have this initial point here. And we could call this, sometimes it's called justification. Sometimes it's called initial sanctification. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. And then where does it go from there? Okay, there's two basic models. We've talked about this before. One is that it looks like this. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, press me on to higher ground, right? But, what's that? I'm sorry? What's that? Yeah, I'm just saying when the author wrote the song, that's what they were thinking was something like this. What does the life of Abraham, for example, what does it look like in terms of faith? Does it look like it's like this and then there's some sort of zap and then it's perfect from there on out? No, it looks more like this. What do we call this part here in the middle? Progressive, okay? Progressive sanctification. So we have initial sanctification, we have progressive sanctification, and then at this end we have another point. What's this point? Glorification. When does it happen, I guess, is probably to be more true. Okay, so death. Or we could say death or rapture when we're in God's presence. We could call this final sanctification. We could call it glorification. Why is it important to understand this with regard to receiving the righteousness of Christ? If we have never experienced this, what's going to happen if we try to be like Christ? We're not. <laughs> okay? If we think that this is always just like a straight line up, how is that going to lead? Could we be frustrated then? Yeah, lose hope. And if we think that this happens somewhere in here, what could that potentially lead us to? Pride. Or blindness to our sin, which are closely connected. And so it's important to understand this process. In the second half of the chapter, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to start talking about how faith and God, Christ's righteousness affect our thinking and our desires and our actions. But it's too much to cover in one week, so we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these truths from your word. We pray that we would experience the righteousness of Christ as we live by faith as you continue to work in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.